You know, th these days of so much bewilderment and confusion and a despair too, and bewilderment on the part, not simply of American people, but imagine of people the world over, uh, it's, it's marvelous sometimes to come across a couple of heroes. My two guests will deny that, and I know they will, but uh, heroes. And I think there are many heroes in the world who are not known, and it's simply living a certain life and uh, by a certain principle. My two guests are the Reverend Theo Kotze and his wife Helen, who are, ex who are exiles from their native country, South Africa. Uh, Reverend Kutz has been a visiting professor at Notre Dame University, and it's a couple of years now since they've been away from their homeland. And I thought just their thoughts, their feelings, and just, just uh, stories about their life and what it is that happened to them that makes them live here at this moment rather than the land they love, South Africa. So Reverend Kutze and Helen Kutze, Theo and Helen, and their story in a moment after this message. I'm thinking in 1962 when I was in South Africa, I remember how beautiful that country was and yet how horrendous the circumstance of apartheid, mm -hmm. of the tremendous majority being what? Being second, third, fourth class. And how do we begin? Who, who are you? Theo Kutz, Reverend, who are you? Well, um, I'm sixth generation South African. My forebears uh, were apparently Austrian because the name Kotze is the leather tunic that is worn by Alpine climbers in, Aus in Austria. I found that very exciting mm -hmm. when I discovered it mm -hmm. first. It's nice to know where your roots are. Um, my father was a, a, a Dutch reformed um, member and um, but he was a rebel. Uh, he was jailed in the abortive uh, re Dutch rebellion in 1914 against the uh, takeover by the British. And um, he had a deep resentment about British occupation, British colonialism. But he, when the Brudebont was formed in 1917, he reacted very closely, uh, strongly against it. I must explain what the Brudebont is. The, the Brudebont is a, a secret society that was formed in 1917 when five very dedicated, committed young Afrikaner Christians met in a house in Johannesburg uh, to commit themselves to ensure that the Afrikaner would never again be oppressed. Now, the Afrikaner had experienced oppression for about 150 years um, by the British. Perhaps to point out, even for some who may not, the Afrikaner yes. is the white South African, the ruling class. That's South right. Um, uh, ruling white South African um, who speaks a language called Afrikaans. It's a derivative of the Dutch language. So that's my background. And... Um, then my father did, uh, was a very unusual man, very eccentric man, very brilliant man, um, who very widely read. He lived as a hermit in a tent for a number of years. He was a lawyer by profession. And he's sent me, part of his reaction to the, the kind of um, totalitarian society that was developing 
where everything is uh, or life is is ruled you know by the uh, the the rules of the game that they set and by the laws and the law is one of the terribly oppressive things in South African society um he sent me to an english speaking school in an english speaking university with disastrous results this went in cape town no this was um in johannesburg i actually grew up near the botswana border uh, which became very useful to me a couple of years ago and um then i went to university in johannesburg and there i met a i met a i met a girl who sang in a methodist choir uh that took me to the methodist church i went to the methodist church to listen to the choir but particularly to wave at this girl from the balcony and yeah she is today that's hello maybe she should yeah. say something about her background yes well my parents were british missionaries in south africa and i was born there grew up in this colonial sort of situation where um it was just assumed that whites were superior as it was in all the colonial situations around the world and uh never thought about it being anything any different and um i met this fellow <laughs> at university and we ultimately married and uh, gradually together i think really began to discover more of the truth about our situation in south africa though it took me a long time because i was for many years uh, completely involved in bringing up five children and doing the usual work of a minister's wife in a church situation and it was really only later that um i was um made aware of the real injustices in our situation and i'm ashamed very ashamed when i look back but that's and realize how very much a part of the system mm. i was how much part of it we were the the wages that we paid to our servants for instance and um, which were the accepted wages but which were a pittance and i'm ashamed to look back on that but theo is just about to say it's possible to what to live that way without it's, being it, aware it's oh. very possible in any society we find it um so in your own society where again and again we meet people who haven't got a clue about what's going on and in south africa this is so it's therefore not very different from other parts of the world but there is, there is another factor that whites um whites feel very guilty about it that deep down they know the whites of south africa the whites of south africa deep down they know that the system is very unjust but here is a tiny minority of people 17% of the population who are the only people with a vote who have all the power um who control every um, sector of that society who alone are in the in the positions of power in the media in the police in the um security police in universities in the universities in law in churches uh, right throughout education in the church um in the government of course in all government departments in commerce and industry and where also the division of land is such that 85% of the population that is the black population is confined to 13% of the land 
Well, that is a gross injustice. But nevertheless, you live as whites in South Africa and you live in a white area and it, which is set aside for whites because everybody lives in separate group areas. You very rarely see other people except in the work situation or maybe in the streets. The education laws are such that... Um, you, well, you don't meet people of another race on a social basis. That's what it amounts to. So that you never really get to know those people and what their problems are or what their life is like. Sure. You, you, young people don't, don't meet until they get into a work situation but and then, then it's a master-servant but relationship. But I've got to ask something. This <coughs> was similar to the American South many years, still to some extent, mm. a pre-civil rights movement mm. and now too. Mm. As a little child... Doesn't the Africana child and and the black child, aren't they together till a certain moment? Yes, this was very much the case. Um, but only in the country situations. Ah, rural. In the, yes. On the farms. Only in the rural yeah. On the farms and perhaps in real small villages, you know. And then comes but that crazy break. The loss is no longer. One day they're told, you no, no longer associate with your... That's, that's right. right. You go to separate schools, yeah. you go to separate universities. You know, and you, you don't talk to, and you don't talk to each other on an equal level yeah. anymore. But you see, I'm talking now to Theo and Helen Kotzer, who were really part of a privi- You were part of the privileged group of South Africa, were you not? Right. Each yes. of you, both of you. Very much so. Uh, now, what what is it? Now, you could have lived your life there as many of your colleagues, many of your other white people of your of your of your stratum could have easy sort of life. Uh, kind of luxurious, a low pay, for many servants for little pay, uh, good conversation, theater, sports. What is it? What happened? Why are you here and not there? How did it begin? Um, I'd like just to comment on one thing that Theo said first, which perhaps is part of this, that um, I'd like to say that the majority of white people who are uneasy about this injustice are not at all thinking along the lines of giving a vote to black people. They're realizing it's unjust and thinking perhaps we should give them more. We, the whites, should give them more, but not we should share. Um, well, well, so it's a handout all oh, the time. Right. Noblesse oblige. Right. Um, for my part, as I say, I really only started to get some sense of what was happening towards the end of the 50s. This was a time of great unrest, the 50s in South Africa, um, the first decade after the nationalist government came into power in 1948, when uh, one law after another had to be passed in order to entrench the Afrikaners' power, to keep the nationalists there. They couldn't be um, removed by... Uh, an election because they had readjusted the voting constituencies and um, one law after another to ensure that they remained and that the whites remained on top and um, this couldn't happen without a lot of protest and so there was a tremendous amount of protest around the country by whites and blacks but I should think that the majority were blacks by far and enormous numbers of blacks were rounded up at demonstrations time and again and thrown into prison. And we were uneasily aware of all this that was going on without really being involved in it. 
and it all culminated in um, 1960 at Sharpville, where... Um, that is a, a black village as it was then near Johannesburg. Um, well, there had been demonstrations called for around the country by blacks against the carrying of passes, which had been the sign of oppression and the instrument of oppression right through, I should think, 60 years that blacks had to carry passes and this uh, curtailed them in every moment of their lives, really. And uh, so there were demonstrations in 1960 against the carrying of passes, chiefly because at this point um, the government was introducing passes for black women as well as men. And at a peaceful demonstration um, at this place, Sharpville, the police panicked at the numbers of people approaching the police station to hand in their passes and fired on them and killed 67 people, mostly women, and uh, injured, I think it was something like 180. And this was a shock to the whole world. It was a shock to us in South Africa. And I think that was the beginning of um, a real awakening in me but it's still a very slow awakening in me, and I became more aware through Theo, really. So he could tell you more how his, his awareness grew. Yes, my awareness grew, first of all, um, in that I, my father was a, a liberal-minded man. Now, I say liberal-minded um, as against liberal in the, in, in, in the broader sense. He, he really did understand where things were at. He was a lawyer with a... Um, a large practice near the uh, Botswana border, as uh, I mentioned just now. He had a, a predominantly black clientele, and um, he was a, a terror in cross-examination, and he was often, therefore, uh, cross-examining the police and so on, um, who had a very great respect for him. Mm. I, and I saw him in action. and. He inculcated in me uh, a spirit of justice or, or an understanding of justice, let's put it that way. And um, then a great uncle of mine who uh, was the chief justice um, of the Dutch Republic in the Transvaal under President Kruger uh, confronted... You point out that Kruger to the Africana people of Sodom and George Washington. Today. Yes. Umpal. Well, you know, it is his yeah. it is his image that is stamped on the symbol of oppression. And I, I want to use that term very advisedly, that the Kruger Rand is a symbol of oppression to black people in South Africa. But um, President Kruger was in conflict with his chief justice, Sir John Kotzer, over the issue of the rule of law. Uh, Kotzer had asserted... Kotzer was your grandfather. My great-uncle. Yeah, great-uncle. Great yes. And Kotzer had asserted that um, the, court, uh, the courts had the right to criticise the government if the government were wrong. Kruger replied that the um, principle of criticism was a device of the devil, and he fired Kotzer. So there's something of that kind of thing in my background. And the, one of the fascinating things, really, is that on October the 19th, 1977, when the security police served me with a banning order, my banning order was signed by Kruger. 
80 years later, that is, uh, the Kruger, who at that time was um, South Africa's Minister Security of Justice. Security Chief Minister of Police. Yes. Involved with certain scandals. Minister of Justice yeah. and involved in, yes. And so that this 80 years lapsed, wow. that there was another uh, Kruger-Kotzer yeah. confrontation. But the other thing that ha had a big influence on, on me was um, in the Methodist Church, suddenly meeting and, and um, being involved with, in, in depth, uh, uh, with blacks who were my peers. Indeed, much more than that. They were my superiors in, in every way. Superior intellect, um, superior knowledge, understanding of world affairs. And I, I was really shaken by this, that here were people who, who um, I, I had to respect very deeply. Then Helen had mentioned um, this event at Sharpville, but one of the key years in, in my growth was 1966. In 1966, I was appointed by the Methodist Church to be the chaplain, the prison chaplain to Robben Island, which is South Africa's Alcatraz. And, all and that's where the political prisoners are sent. All black political prisoners black political are sent prisoners. there. And I got to know Nelson Mandela, and Robert Sabukwe personally. Now, Nelson Mandela was the leader of the African National Congress and Robert Sabukwe of the Pan-African Congress. And uh, m men of this caliber, again, who are world figures and whose um, mature judgment and bearing made a tremendous impression upon me and their ability to transcend that imprisonment to transcend the um, the possibility that uh, they would be there for the rest of their lives, and one in in observing all this and all that was going on there, one knew who the free people were. They were free. It was, it was their um, their captors who were the prisoners. As you're saying this, Theo Theo Cuts and Helen Cuts, I guess, suppose we hear the voice of someone you knew the late Chief Albert John Latouli, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, ironically, right. a Nobel right. Peace Prize winner under area arrest, house arrest perhaps. It's before he, this was in 1962, it's a little, it's a house of a mutual friend in Stanger. Yes, uh, the yes, we know, of, we know Stanger, Grotville. Uh, Durban, yeah, yes. it's primarily in the East Indian population, That's uh, right. and our host yes. was a man. Okay. So here is, you mentioned past books earlier. Yes. yes. Suppose we hear Chief Latouli. That would be talk. wonderful. Um, in order that he might keep control of the African, he was required to um, carry some document to identify him and, um, and also to bear witness to, the, to his having paid his taxes and so on, you see. But as time went on, other things were added on to this document. It became uh, a labor service contract. If you're working in town, it indicates for whom you're working. And if you move out of town, it's, you, it, it, it's endorsed to indicate that you have left town. Without that document, uh, you are arrested by the police. Anytime, anywhere. And the document is, uh, is it, what's the nature of it? Is, is it one card? Is it? Uh, no, 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 no. 
Well, first it used to be just one piece of paper, but since the nationalists uh, came into power, they have consolidated that. Um, well, let me say this: there were several documents. There was the what you might call the the, the personal pass, and then there was the service contract, and um, also your 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 receipt for paying your poll tax. Now these have been consolidated into one by the nationalists. So it's one book consolidating various documents which they had before. <laughs> Incidentally, I think the act uh, that brought that about was called the Abolition of Passes and uh, Consolidation of Documents. Can you beat that, this man? Is, this is called a, a magnificent use of euphemism. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking in hearing, because your thoughts in hearing, uh, late Chief Tooth, was, and of course that laugh that has every every dimension oh. of irony to it. Yes. And uh, that's so typical of Africans. I found this very, very moving. Uh, Helen and I were with Albert Latuli's daughter three weeks ago in Atlanta, Georgia, and had long conversations with her about her father and his wonderful witness. But hearing that laugh, it sounded to me so much like Robert. Robert Sabukwe. Robert Sabukwe, who became one of our, our dearest friends. He was ultimately, he, he was never tried, and he was banished and banned to Robben Island, where he spent nine years without trial. In fact, there was a special act of parliament passed every year to keep him there. Right. And um, then he was released and he was banished to a place called Kimberley, where the big diamond mines are. And on the island, just again to illustrate the quality of these people, those cells in Robben Island, six by six cells, um, if I were in South Africa, it would be an offence. I'd be committing an offence under law now by describing conditions in a prison. You may not do that. Uh, you may not photograph a prison. You may not photograph prisoners. But these six by six cells had a little window just right at the top and um, you couldn't see out of it without standing on a chair or a bed and it was an offence for them to look out of that window. But their cells were packed with books, floor to ceiling. And Robert Sabuque, during his time on the island, obtained degrees in economics, law, theology and political science. And then he practised law. But he had acquired dignity and uh, a calm about him, but he had a cutting edge to his whole life and witness and a, a deep and, and a perception about humanity, about what was happening in South Africa that was really quite unique. He was one of the great prophets. And a complete lack of bitterness. Yes, that was the, the mm -hmm. remarkable thing. Complete what? Complete lack of bitterness. How could that be? Now, this is, because you talk about transcendence earlier. How could that be, that complete lack of... How do you explain that? Well, you know, we've learned this from, from our African friends. Another was Stephen Biko, whose name is very well known. He was killed by the security police while he was being interrogated in, in, and in detention without trial. There was no bitterness in Steve. 
There's no bitterness in Barney Pichana, who was his lieutenant, and, and others. Again and again we've discovered this. I think it's because of um, an inner security, you know, that a lot of our reactions to, to people and to events comes out of our, our insecurity and the fact that we find them threatening. Um, it's a defensiveness. But here were people who had um, a dignity and a worth and an awareness about this that left them completely unthreatened by, by events or by people in power. And all the and more remarkable when you consider the conditions under which black people live in South Africa. Sure. And one of the things that they had learned and one of the things they taught me is that if you are going to remain alive in a situation like that, a situation um, of tyranny and the utmost cruelty and uh, ruthlessness, both physical, um, mental, and economic ruthlessness, then you need these, you need to develop these inequalities. And I don't claim to have these at all. Uh, Helen is very much better at this than I am, and then I'd like to tell you just now about some of the things that have happened in that way, where I've learned so much from her. But these chaps, these, the, um, like, like Steve Beaker, and the whole black consciousness movement, this is what it was about. The black consciousness movement was not against something, it was affirming something. It was an affirmation of human worth and human dignity. And they therefore knew that they had that within them, those qualities within them, uh, which the people who were oppressing them just simply didn't possess. Uh, Their only recourse is to <coughs> violence. As you're talking now, Theo Kotze, so movingly, you and Helen Kotze here, we take a slight pause, and I want to come back to the theme you said, what you had learned from Helen, and also you, and what, when it was that when you became officially the quote-unquote enemy of the South African establishment and what it was that happened and why you're here. So in, in a moment after this. So re resuming the, the reflections, the conversation with the Reverend Theo Kotze and Helen, who are two South African expatriates living right here in the United States at the moment, teaching at various universities. and. Uh, you were a privileged class. Both of you could have lived a life if you didn't think too deeply about it. You could have lived a, a privileged life wholly unaware or at least could have shut your eyes to it, but you chose not to, the hard way, some would say. What, what is when, when Helen and you spoke of, you, of your awareness growing, in her case, growing more gradually than yours, when, when did things happen? Well, uh, uh, just following, I was I was on the island, Robben Island, or a visitor, a prison visitor to the island, chaplain for that year, 1966, 
and there were these very important meetings with the great black leaders. And then the um, government stopped me going and they said to my church they gave as the reason that I did not know how to behave toward political prisoners. Well, I never did try to behave toward political prisoners, but to human beings. And I decided at that point in time that uh, really I'd had enough with fooling around with this. That there were things, there were impulses within me, but there was um, the re increasing realization that as a Christian minister, I needed to be obedient to the things that the person I was claiming as Lord, Jesus Christ, was saying. And I began to take a new, good, hard look at the Bible, at the New Testament. The Bible is just about the most revolutionary book there mm. is. Um, interestingly enough, when people are detained without trial, they're not allowed any literature at all, detained without trial under the Terrorism Act, um, without any recourse to the law. They're not allowed any literature but the Bible. And uh, to show the kind of ignorance that there is around, I sent a Jerusalem Bible down to somebody who's a detainee, and the person who took it found himself confronted with a security policeman who wouldn't accept this. And he said, but look, um, detainees are allowed a Bible. He said, yes, ma'am, but it's got to be a holy Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I, I can also remember a detainee coming out and saying to me, look, uh, why didn't you tell me about this book? Why didn't you tell us about the things that are being said in this book? And, it, you know, this kind of experience too. Said, well, you know, what is it saying? <laughs> and, and that one looks at it again. And I found there the impulse. Don't you think and that the courage. our visit overseas in 1967 had a big impression too, because it opened our eyes to new approaches to sure. the gospel and yes. to Christian ministry. Where was well, this then? To Britain and ah, Europe. This is when you would travel, and then. Mm. Yes, I think uh, travel, of course, does yeah. broaden. And it helps you to get a, a look at South Africa in perspective yeah. when you come out. That's another thing. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back. I want to continue with this. We'll come back later on to the role of industry, powerful yes, industry, uh, in maintaining the South African yes, establishment that is, yes. uh, particularly American and British and others. But coming back to that, so you decided that's enough. Well, I decided this is enough, and it was on a good Friday that um, I preached a sermon in which I, I just simply said to my congregation, look, you know, if we really say believe in this man and we say that we do, then we've simply got to do the things that he did. And what he did in that first Easter week was to very deliberately turn his face toward Jerusalem. He went there to confront the authorities. And he confronted them in two ways, politically and economically. Um, he turned over the money tables. Um, he, was, he was saying something very important there about society and its use of money and how that money is earned and, and so on. And um, he conf confronted the political and the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. And so I called upon my people, and this was a congregation of oh, probably about 1,200, 1,300 people that morning, to um, 
oppose with all their might the whole system of apartheid. Apartheid meaning separateness. That barbarous system which the uh, nationalist government devised to keep whites in privilege and in power. And, um, and that we had to just follow this through to the end. Now, it just so happened that one of the leading Cape Town ed editors, editor of the Cape Times, was in the congregation that day, so he came along and asked for my notes, and this got blown up front page headlines. The next day I had a visit from the security police. And that, uh, and I'd had a visit from the security police just after coming off Robben Island um, for the last time. So that uh, uh, this is what happens. That visit was a perfectly friendly one. They just came along to pass the time of day and so on, but they'd identified themselves. It was, these were two senior officers, and uh, the message was very, very clear. But I suppose there's something of my father's and my great uncle's obstinate streak in them, in me, and um, this just determined me more than ever. And so you so I, I then um, began a ministry um, of confrontation, I suppose. But again, you know, l learning from blacks in this, uh, more and more. Um, I, myself, and, and, and other um, members in the Christian Institute. The Christian Institute had a, a tremendous effect upon me. Um, that was an ecumenical group of Christians who were fed up with the lack of witness of their, uh, of their own churches and formed together under Bayes Nodi, who is very well known. He came to Chicago a few years ago to receive the Reinhold Nibber Peace Award. And uh, Bayers and I happened to be second cousins. And I was offered this job as uh, director, a director in the Christian Institute. And they're in fellowship with people who were also striving for a new identification with the suffering of people in South Africa. Um, we developed uh, various strategies. One of the important things um, is that n not to be against something all the time, you know, but again, as, as we said earlier, to be for something, to affirm the, the deep values of life, to affirm the truths, um, to affirm the, the fact, the truth, that, that truth must confront power, um, which is what the prophet Amos was all about. And... Um, so we instituted an in-depth study of uh, the whole South African way of life and in all its political and economic and theological, uh, educational, legal, um, social dimensions. And coming out of this, we, uh, this was a two-year program where academics and Afrikaans and English-speaking South Africans, black and white, were all involved. We came through with... Um, sort of knowing much more what it was all about and where we should be. So since you kept on doing this, now you were being watched. Oh, yes, more. yes. Uh, uh, what happened, Helen? How did this, how did... Well, we uh, gradually got more and more attention and um, in the early 1970s started getting um, 
attention paid to us by some of the right-wing supporters of the government who were incidentally never caught for anything that they did because the security police were hand-in-glove with them. Um, it started with um, having the tires of our car slashed. The tires of your car? Right. And then um, after a, an occasion when Theo was standing with demonstrating students, it was a demonstration against inequalities in education, when the students were beat, badly beaten up, these were white students, and they were badly beaten up by the police. And uh, ultimately, well, it was after about three days of demonstrations in the end, Theo was arrested with some of, the, some of them and so on. And that week we had um, threatening phone calls. There were leaflets distributed all over Cape Town with um, claim, claiming that Theo was a communist as well as other leading nonsense, churchmen. Yeah. And um, we had communist signs printed on our walls in huge 10-foot <laughs> high signs, um, red, red paint, you know. What about your neighbors' so reactions? Um, mostly they, I guess the neighbors with whom we were on fairly friendly terms expressed some concern for us and uh, friendship. The others just continued to ignore us <laughs> that was it. Yes, but um, there was much more than that. But there was, uh, I think there was actually quite a lot of um, concern for us among neighbors, really. There was quite a lot of friendship, but it d did lead in the, in the end, actually, we found when we moved from that house uh, about three years later, uh, that one of our neighbours uh, came and told us that his home had been used by the security police as a place to watch us for three months, every, every night. night. And uh, we were aware, we became well aware that there must be neighbours who were being used by the security police. And um, it was just a sort of day, daily thing that we, we knew our home was bugged we knew that our telephone was bugged. We knew that we were probably being watched. And we never had in our home a conversation which we didn't want overheard. Um, Indeed, at one stage, Helen and I in our own home were writing notes to each other. You were writing notes to each other in your own in house? In our own house, because, because we knew that it was being bugged. bugged. Writing notes. Yes, and it wasn't, it wasn't so much that um, there was... We were doing anything that we didn't want known because this was well known. I mean, we worked in the open, but because we thoroughly resented this intrusion on our privacy. Now, what about your children? I, uh, let me just say that oh, Helen is, a, in a usual modest way, has only told half the story. Oh, tell more. Um, we were, we our house was petrol bombed. Oh, it was on bombed a, on a number of occasions. Uh, so was the Christian Christian Institute office. We had uh, one of the most frightening experiences was to, one night, uh, fairly late, the dog, our dog started barking. Um, uh, well, uh, rather, our dog sc scratched the door to go out. And so I went out and I went out with the dog and just around the side of the house. And when I came back, there was a parcel um, on the front doorstep. And this was a parcel of dynamite, which was wired to a battery. Now, that meant that the dog had n knew that there was somebody at the door or knew that there was somebody outside 
she was a, a German shepherd dog, highly sensitive and highly trained animal. And um, but it was somebody she she knew because she didn't react to this, and she simply went round the corner. And during that two minutes that I was around the corner of the house, this person came and planted that parcel and went away again. You say somebody she knew. Yeah. So it must have been somebody either... A neighbor? It could have been a neighbor. It could have been a friend. It could have been uh, somebody who had visited the house on several occasions. But that, that was really frightening. We also had shots fired through our bedroom window. Um, and... Uh, on one well, occasion, we had a whole series of things. We had um, a load of gravel delivered at the house, and uh, all sorts. And of I take it when you were alone at home, sometime you were visited too, were you? No, I wasn't. No, you weren't visited. No. no. No, there was one nasty experience when when uh, I received a threatening phone call, and it was a a, th a threat on Helen's life, and. Um, this person said, I suppose you think your wife is at home. And I then called home and she wasn't there. Uh, but, I mean, you know, this this kind of thing happened continually. And once the my brakes, car brakes were interfered with, they pulled out the brake fluid cable. And that, that was a bad Well, experience. how did this affect you? Okay, now, uh, the, usual, the obvious question will be asked. Didn't you start having second thoughts now. This is the question they ask. Now here, here are Theo Helen Cutsy, two privileged members of a community who are now more than outcasts, outlaws, being, lives being threatened. Right, now what about yourselves and your inner selves now? Well I want to illustrate this uh, by an incident when, and it was that particular incident when Helen's life had been threatened and I was sitting in my office and I went then, found she not at home, I went to search for her. And um, she had promised me that she wouldn't go out because this was a very rough time of intimidation and that uh, she'd wait for me if she wanted to go shopping. And I found that she was not at home. And while I was there, she came round the corner with her shopping basket. And I felt really angry about this and upset about it. And then she said to me, look, I want to talk to you. Let's go inside and sit down. And she said this, we're not going to go on living like this. We're going to, from now on, live normal lives. And that, that was it. It was, um, that's, that's what we had to do. So you, the idea is living a normal life under most abnormal circumstances. Yeah. And it's, it's, just, it's transcending. And, and you, you know, there are, there are certain survival mechanisms. Mm. One is a sense of humor. The ah. other is a, you know, so we come back to Sabukwe again until a Thule's laugh, yeah, don't we? That's right, right. Thule's laugh. Right. Thule's laugh. Yeah. I guess that this, this is about isn't it? Thule's laugh. Yes. Uh, what about your children? Our children were not living at home. Well, for most of this time, we well, our daughter was at home for a couple of years, and our youngest son was at home a couple of years. But um, the others were away and married, and um, they were always very supportive. They, our daughter, I suppose, went through the roughest time because she was with us in all the worst intimidation, but she stood by us and just was part of 
what was going on. Yeah, well, our family being superb. Yeah, I'm thinking here, here you are, you two, Theo and Helen Cotsey. Now here, it is now 1980. You're visiting America now. When, what do you find out? Uh, do you find an awareness on the part of the, uh, on a part of your colleagues on campuses elsewhere? You talk of the situation. Find a deep interest, and 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 a concern, but not really an awareness. Um, you know, it's difficult, I think, for for people at a distance to understand what that situation is really about. It's a diabolical situation. Um, this is human cruelty at its worst. The security police are the Gestapo. Um, South Africa is is today very much like Germany in the 1930s. The, uh, the, the actions of the security police are the same. Um, the law, it is the law again that is, is, uh, that is the culprit. You know, and, and one of the things we have to explain continually is that there are two very sharp differences between South Africa and America in the 50s and 60s, for instance. The one is that in South Africa it is the vast majority of people who are oppressed. And it is the minority, tiny minority, who are in power. 17%. Uh, 17%, yes. The other is that, you know, it, your constitution entrenches, indeed enshrines, the principle of justice. Now, we have no illusions about uh, um, America at all. We have a great admiration for so many facets of American society. But we have no illusions about the deep issues and what is going on and what continues to go on. Um, and and the, uh, you know, the, the abuse of power, which is the basic issue all around the world. But, um, and however much your constitution is abused and manipulated, the principle of justice is at the heart of it. In South Africa, it is the constitution itself, it is the law itself that is the instrument of injustice. And that's the dreadful thing about that so society. What is, I know, there's asking for a prognosis is silly, I know, but what do you see now, Helen? It's very difficult to say. We know that there must come change, that um, no minority like that can forever keep such a majority down and it's oppress them. It's the last them. place on earth where a white minority is in power. Right. That's right, because now we have in the, the various other countries of South Africa, Zimbabwe, oh, particularly yeah. with Mugabe's victory That's in right. Zimbabwe. And so the, uh, the change must come. But how to predict, it's impossible to predict how that may come or when. And it's, I think history shows us that it's often some very small thing that seems to trigger it off. And one just hopes that something will trigger it off. Um, there, are, uh, there are many ways in which things could change. The, uh, the major um, obstacle in the way, of course, is the vast military and paramilitary power of the government. 
and blacks are not allowed to carry any weapons at all. They're not allowed to own guns. So that uh, talking about an uprising is, uh, it sounds foolish. And yet one knows that some, some change must come about. Mm. I want to disagree with Helen here a little bit. Um, we often disagree. Mm. And um, <laughs> I think it has been triggered off. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that the uh, new South African society is on the way. And the, the uh, Mugabe's victory has been an enormous uh, encouragement to blacks in South Africa. And the messages that I'm getting is that the morale of blacks is very high indeed. And uh, again, thinking back to what we've been saying about the, the, the spirit of blacks, and, and the black consciousness movement isn't dead because Biko is dead. It isn't out of action because the movement itself and all its satellite movements are banned and illegal organizations. You cannot kill the spirit of man and a woman. You, you, cannot, you cannot destroy the um, essential dignity and freedom that is in the human spirit. History has proved this over and over and over again. However, I want to say that the great, one of the great inhibiting factors and one of the things that holds back the liberation of South Africa is Western corporate investment. Western corporate investment undergirds the system. It makes the system of apartheid possible. It makes it more efficient. Um, there was a time when uh, this whole pass law system was hopelessly inefficient. Nowadays, people press the buttons of an IBM computer. Um, uh, the security police are made more efficient. The monitoring of the border, uh, the migrant labor system, all these are undergirded and strengthened by the presence of, um, of American corporations it, and it, others. If it weren't for American corporate investments, primarily American as well as British, uh, the, the South African government, you think, would not be anywhere nearly as strong as it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they're aware of it because yeah. the people who are really nervous about any kind of withdrawal or divestment are South African whites. And the government has spent millions in propaganda to try and Counter this. Now, you and Helen, are you, your eggs, are you banned? How, how did that happen? You got away. Well, I'm a banned person under the Terrorism Act. Banned. And um, that means that I cannot be quoted in South Africa. That means that I cannot. You can't be quoted, you I say? I cannot be quoted. Mm -hmm. I cannot publish anything. I cannot um, be in the company. I cannot be in the company, the presence of more than one person at a time. That's what a ban means, doesn't that, it? That's what a banning means. It's a form of house arrest yeah. where you become your own yeah. jailer. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a civil death. And you were confined and to a small area, yes. too. My passport was withdrawn in 1974 after some of the things that I'd been saying in America at that time and in Chicago. And uh, I uh, said that for six years I haven't had a passport at all. I still don't have one. And uh, I had to escape. I had to escape across the border. Oh, that's to Botswana? Yes. Uh, do you hope, well, I suppose the obvious question, uh, and actually I know you miss the country roots again, 
someday perhaps you hope you and Helen to return to South Africa under other circumstances. We're going back. Yes, we are. That would be a great day. <laughs> I think it'd be a great day for the world. Perhaps you see in South Africa almost a metaphor too, don't you? A, uh, the, there's a, re a fact. It's a fact. But it's also metaphorical too, isn't it? It represents so much of the... Oh, it does. Yeah. Yes, I mm. think that it's a microcosm of... Well, as somebody said, I said again, um, it was Latuli or somebody like that who said that South Africa is a microcosm of all the pains of the world. You know, I was thinking, uh, there's another friend of yours, Alan mm. Payton. Perhaps just to hear his voice. I know. Oh, that would be great. Alan Payton, who is as stubborn as they come. I yes. guess he has that Scott stubbornness in him. Yes. We, we had a letter from Alan yeah. um, a couple of yeah. weeks ago. Speaking now of the country in which you live, this, the beloved country, leads to you the creative spirit. How has this affected you as a creative spirit, being so involved? You're obviously an involved Oh, a great man. deal. A very great deal. I mean, uh, I'm just hoping to finish the end of next month, this Life of Hoffman. I reckon that if I hadn't done anything else, it would have taken me four solid years of work, as it is taking me more like eight or more, you see. One does, um, one is inclined to resent that, to resent being called away for this and being called away for that, and to resent the fact that there's an emergency and your friends go to prison. Or you feel that you must uh, hold meetings of protest against the sabotage act. Pull you away from your work every time. It does feel that very much. Somehow, though, you can't cut yourself off, though, can you? I mean, you, you say, I am the writer. I, am, mm -hmm. I must finish this work, and yet the other tug is there. Yes, I don't know, Mr. Turkle. I don't know. I don't know whether the true writer doesn't, in a way, not isolate himself, but he he goes into retreat, so to speak, and then he writes. Now that I have never been able to do. That I've never been able to do, so of course he could not cut himself off from the rest of humanity, is what he's saying, isn't mm -hmm. he? That's right. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's and identification, especially with suffering. And of course that's what um, Helen and Theo Cutts are all about. And we never had a time, you know, I'm talking out of the audience, so much uh, despair and meanness too. At the same time, we know there's a generosity in the human spirit, and to come across a couple of people who are, and who are like this, are heroes in our time. It's very, very moving and helpful to all of us. Perhaps anything you'd care to say before we say goodbye for now? Well, I'd just like to say that um, I feel very humbled it's been a great privilege to be allowed to live a lifetime in South Africa and to be involved with and trusted by the people at grassroots. Um, there's no way that one could have earned this. We're grateful that it happened. And we have a community that still supports us um, in spite of the distance, physical distance between us. And nobody can ever take that away from us. We Theo Cutsey, Helen Cutsey, thank you very much. <laughs>